Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. 2023 is nearly at a close, so we've been looking back on a great year for Intelligence Squared and enjoying some of the brilliant listens we've heard across all of our podcasts and live events over the past 12 months. And we're hearing from the people that make them happen too. Today we're talking to Matt McAllister, CEO of Intelligence Squared, and Hannah Kay, our executive producer. And it's a bittersweet one this, as Hannah, having been the beating heart of the company for the last 17 years, right from its early days up until this year's great year of events that she's been an integral part of, is leaving us soon to explore some exciting new things. So let's hear from both Matt and Hannah now with their favourite picks of 2023. Hannah, it's been another great year at Intelligence Squared and a fascinating one in the world. And I can say that because I have almost nothing to do with what gets made and you have an awful lot to do with what gets made and have done for years. So I'm really excited to learn what you enjoyed this year. Well, it's a strange end of year for me, Matt, because I'm leaving Intelligence Squared. Not entirely, but I won't be working full-time for Intelligence Squared anymore. But as always, it's really great to look back and remember some of the fantastic events that we've produced. And obviously, it's not just me. It is the whole team. What are some of your highlights? Well, for me, I particularly enjoyed the event we did with Nick Cave, where he talked about love, loss and religion, and said that what defines us as human beings is loss which I find very touching. I love the online vegan debate that we did with the environmentalist George Monbiot and the sustainable farmer Patrick Holden. That one got quite heated. And I really enjoyed the event we did with Mary Beard and Rory Stewart, where they were both talking about power. And that ranged from the ancient world right up to today. Absolutely. I really agree with you about Nick Cave, a really meaningful conversation, an incredibly touching one. What about you, Matt? What were your highlights? One of the events that I really liked and I was sort of surprised by was with Mustafa Suleiman, one of the world's leading AI experts and movers and shakers in artificial intelligence. He's extraordinarily insightful. He had a book out called The Coming Wave, and The Coming Wave dives deep into whether we should be incredibly excited by what's coming and what's happening in AI or afraid. And I left the event feeling really encouraged and excited. And I have a 13 year old and I felt enthused and almost jealous about the world that the children of today will inherit and the people like Mustafa are building. So I found that kind of incredibly compelling and exciting. The other one that really sticks in my mind was our event with James Comey. This was our event, Trump and Clinton's nemesis, which took place 
at the Union Chapel in London back in June 2023. Now, Comey is, of course, the former director of the FBI, whose influence on the 2016 election is hotly contested and still debated to this day. And he was joining us right around the time when criminal indictments for Donald Trump were starting to roll in. And he was on stage with the razor-sharp satirist Armando Iannucci, creator of shows such as Veep and The Thick of It. So it had that real lightning-in-a-bottle sort of chemistry to the timing and mix of ingredients. Sometimes you can't plan for a little bit of luck, and we had that that evening. Well, let's listen now. This is James Comey on stage with Armando Iannucci back in the summer of 2023. Are there any fans of political corruption in tonight? Because what a week it's been. Um, I don't know, James, if you know about uh, Boris Johnson and the kangaroo court that saw him being expelled against his wishes from Parliament. Oh, no, he resigned of his own accord. Um, there's shenanigans going on in Scotland. And just when you thought it couldn't get any better, uh, Berlusconi died. And, <laughs> but it all, it, all, it all goes back, I think, to uh, one Donald Trump who this week has been facing more federal indictments. And I thought, if only we could speak to someone who had a, a working knowledge of how federal law enforcement worked in America, and in particular, with regard to the office of the President of the United States. So please welcome James Comey. <laughs> Um, James has just written a, a, a fantastic thriller, actually, a real page-turner, called uh, Central Park West, which, as you'd expect, the details of how the FBI and the law authorities operate, it feels very authentic and rich and detailed. But you will probably know him as the face of the inquiry into Hillary Clinton's emails, which seemed so extraordinarily important at the time, uh, but now isn't. And then the person... <laughs> the person who uh, Donald Trump asked to go easy on, was it Michael Flynn, his national security advisor, when you were looking in, when the FBI was investigating, potential links between the uh, Trump campaign and Russia. So, first of all, what's your reaction to where we are now with Donald Trump? Is this, is this bad for him? I think it's bad for him legally. I don't know that it's bad for him politically in seeking the Republican nomination. But if you read that indictment, it's what we call a speaking indictment. So you now know the evidence that the prosecutors are going to put into evidence against him. The pictures are there. The tapes are there. Yeah. And it strikes me as a very, very strong case. He's in big trouble legally. Legally, because one of his attorney generals, Barr, said that he's toast as far as these uh, indictments are. Yeah, I hate to agree with Bill Barr, but I, on, this, on this I will, that I think anybody who cares to understand it, after reading it, will understand he's in big trouble. And because, though, you said, you mentioned the difference between legal trouble and political trouble, because he's saying that even if indicted, even if charged, even if convicted, he's still going to run as president. Is that, is that possible under the American Constitution? It is. Being convicted of a felony might actually prevent him from voting for himself, but it doesn't, <laughs> it does not prevent it. It does not prevent him from being a candidate for office. One less thing for him to think about, isn't it? Right. <laughs> a lot on his plate. Yes. Yeah. 
if you wrote this in a screenplay, it would get rejected that, that the Republican Party might nominate such a person, but I think they might. Oh, I'm so glad I'm not writing Veep at the moment because yeah. so much of what's happening now is... But th there he is, gaining momentum and traction and, you know, turning it into the Donald Trump show by saying there's no evidence, they've got nothing on me, while pictures of classified documents in boxes in his bathroom have been released. And we're at that stage, because I mentioned the Hillary Clinton email thing, we'll get onto that. That seemed so important and, and you know, people were getting very, very worked up about it at the time, that she might have used emails or sent emails on a personal server rather than... This is the nuclear codes sitting in his shower. <laughs> and yet, why hasn't the world caved in? What's, what's happened in those four or five years to, to, to turn that climate into one where the reality is not something that people take seriously. As to his supporters, yes. which are a distinct minority of Americans, it's not about facts. They've been drawn into a cult, really. And, and so there's no way out for them. And every bad fact is painful for them if they stare at it, and so they turn away. January 6th, the TV whispers to them, you fool, look what you did, you fool. Very few people can stare at that, most turn away. I've had cases where fraud victims showed up to support the fraudster at sentencing because it's so hard to admit about yourself that I was a fool. And so there are millions of Americans for whom it doesn't matter. What you just said is absolutely true about the difference between this and the Clinton case. It doesn't matter because it's not about the facts for those mm -hmm. folks. And so there's nothing really to be done about that slice of his followers. They'll drift away eventually, write another story, just as Nixon, when Nixon resigned, 30-some percent supported him, but they found a way to drift away from him, and that, that's what it'll take with that hardcore group. But will he drift away in time for the next election, or is there still uh, a real danger? That I think there's a real, a real prospect that he will be the Republican nominee for president. I think it is very unlikely that the American people, in, even in our slightly odd electoral mm -hmm. vote system, would elect Donald Trump, but it's a non-zero chance, which is why it's so important the American people focus on what's going to be on the ballot next year. And in a way, they're not going to be able to avoid focusing because he'll be front and center in our lives again. Mm -hmm. Tell me front and center. I mean, you've met the guy up close, most notoriously at a, was it a dinner or a lunch yeah. where he sat you down and asked you as head of the FBI to go easy, to lay up. You've mentioned it's, it's like the language of a mobster, really, that, that sense of go easy on my guys, you know, keep them, you know. That's bad, bad stereotype Italian mafia New York. <laughs> just, just I, I actually, I'm going to make a complaint against myself for that, sorry. But <laughs> talk us through that moment then, you know, when you're up close with, with someone. Well, that was actually the... The so-called loyalty dinner, we were sitting yes. as close as you and I are, alone. They had pushed all the furniture off to the side of this cavernous green room on the, the first floor of the residence at the White House. Why? I don't know That's why. It's just a gigantic rug with a tiny table, and we yeah. faced each other. And he <laughs> asked for, directly asked me to promise loyalty to him. And I was so surprised by it, all I could think to do was stare at the man. And so one beat two beats, three beats of silence, and then he looked down and started eating again and came back to it. But the purpose of that dinner was for me to promise him that I was his FBI director, and so I didn't focus much on the food because the rest of the time I was trying to make sure that I didn't say anything that would reinforce that idea. Would there be notes taken at that 
launch show. Would you take notes afterwards? The moment I got in my armored yeah. car, I started writing down everything that had been said. Okay. Because I knew how significant that was. And I knew that it was the really the end between the two of us because I wouldn't give him what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just the stare. But I, to, to tell Donald Trump anything, you almost always have to interrupt him. And so <laughs> I interrupted him to tell him, here's how it has to work, why it's so important mm -hmm. to have the Department of Justice have an independent spirit from the president. The American people have wanted it for 50 years since J. Edgar Hoover. And he was focused on his ice cream or something, so it didn't get through. <laughs> what, <laughs> when you say you had to interrupt him, is, is that what he's like then? Is it just an, is it a kind of uh, long flow of any word that comes into his head? What's the... Yeah, it's a long, again, in my experience, yeah. it's a long verbal search for affirmation. So he's just constantly telling you things mm -hmm. and then saying, right, I'm right about that, I'm right about that. And probably the tensest moment that we had was he was trying to get me, sitting in the Oval Office, to agree that what he had said about Putin was fine when he had said, you know, America, we're killers too. And, and I wouldn't agree. And I said, Mr. President, actually, I, I think that's wrong. And that's, that's not a good description of the way we conduct ourselves. And it was almost like a shadow across the room at that moment. <sighs> and so I was surprised the day I was fired. I shouldn't have been surprised to be fired. How did you get the news? I was talking to employees in the Los Angeles field office, a big audience of FBI people, and behind in this training room there were three televisions with no sound on, tuned to news channels. And while I'm speaking, I start to notice <laughs> that and the first one that picked, it, it's, I'm a, I have to relive this right yeah. now, unfortunately. <laughs> But it We've said, got the TV monitors here. But just, <laughs> it said over, on the TVs, it said, Comey resigns. Yes. And so I, I, you all don't know this, but there's a lot of very funny people in the FBI. <laughs> and so I thought it was a practical joke. Okay. And so I turned to the head of the LA office, a woman that I had promoted who I thought the world of, and I said, that took a lot of work. And then I kept talking. And then the... <laughs> because I wasn't going to let them get the better of me, so I wanted to be a good sport. But I, so I kept talking, and then I noticed it now said, Comey fired across all of them, and I thought, no, nah, they're not going to no. go there. <laughs> um, and so now all the employees are turning around looking at the screens, and I said, look, I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm going to go find out. But it doesn't change what I want to say to you, and so I said some things about the quality you, of their work, and then I walked out. <laughs> you, you, should, you could have maintained the, uh, the lie. You could have taken a cue from your own president. And just <laughs> like, that didn't happen. Yeah. It was all lies, fake news, mainstream media. Didn't happen. I'm still here. I wish you'd been there. <laughs> no, I'm not going to leave. <laughs> and did you get a, a leaving present, or did you... Uh... <laughs> I did not. Uh, I, I was allowed to fly home on the FBI aircraft, uh -huh. which infuriated Trump. He called uh, my deputy, who immediately became the acting director, and said he wanted an investigation as to how I was allowed to come home on an FBI plane. And the deputy said, like, well, I could investigate it, but I could tell you the answer right now. I, I authorized it. <laughs> We're responsible for his protection. Yeah. We can't leave him in L.A. <laughs> but Trump was furious about that. Yeah, see, that is an episode of succession, I think. I think, <laughs> I think one of the Roys takes a plane, and uh, another Roy 
says he's not allowed to do that. But actually, the, the resign behind you, I think we did do that in the thick of it. We didn't do it in Veep, but we did do Malcolm Tucker says he's not resigning, and then, but the news comes on right behind him. Um, <laughs> it's but, funny but, now. It's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what were, I mean, but you said, but actually, when you had the lunch, you kind of thought, that is it, though, didn't you? The, the, the tide has turned. Yeah, when I wouldn't, I mean, the purpose of that was mm. to, to extract a promise from me that I would be no threat to him or any of his people. And then when I wouldn't agree to dump the case against Michael Flynn, that was yeah. the second stone in the load. And then the third, I think, was when I interrupted him to tell him he was wrong about Putin and America. And then the fourth was he wanted me to say publicly he wasn't under investigation and I wouldn't do it. And so, I, and here's the way I misinterpreted it. I thought he hates me. Good, because that means there'll be a distance between us. He won't be inviting me over for dinner anymore, but it, it tipped over into sort of an irrational, I need to get rid of this guy. But is there something, I mean, you must have had dealings with him prior to that, obviously, whether as president or, or even in New York as a New York figure, you must have come up against him. Before. No, I no? mean, I met him before he was president, literally. Yeah. President Obama sent me, the director of the CIA, and the director of the NSA up to New York to Trump Tower the first week of January, so three weeks before he took office. This to, is during the transition. Right, to tell yeah. him what we had discovered about the Russian interference in the election. And so it wasn't a great beginning. <laughs> but yeah, I'd never met the man before. Yeah. Obviously, I knew who he was because mm -hmm. his name was plastered all over the place. Yes. Yes, he can never forget who he is, can he, really? It's just something, never having met him, but just reading so many accounts of how he operates and is there something sociopathic about him? I mean, you talked about that continual need for affirmation, that even though he hated you, he still wanted to get your approval in a way. I mean, we have the late, dearly departed Boris Johnson. <laughs> we, we have, he seems to have that same. He doesn't have any friends, but he wants everyone to be his friend. It's all about people reflecting their approval of him, which is fine on one-to-one -one basis, but when it's the person who runs the country, it's a much more... Serious. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not in a position to diagnose him, but I, I've never met, and this sounds like I'm being facetious, but I mean this, I've never met an adult with a greater hunger for affirmation. It seemed as if everything was about what can fill this hole in me. So there's some gigantic hole in the middle of his identity that I don't know where that comes from. And in some ways, it's, it'd be sad if he wasn't uh, in the positions of power. He has been and wants to be again. But that's... That's what I was struck by. You're president of the United States, yet you're constantly working to get me to say something good about you. And that's been his kind of downfall in a way, in that he wants everyone's approval. So he's quite happy to have journalists following him around. He's quite happy to have... I think the central piece of evidence in, in the current indictment is there's a tape recordings of him saying <laughs> the things that he is on his social media saying he didn't say. Yeah. This, this kind of not, not knowing when to shut up. He's not a very good mastermind, is he? He's, he? Well, I'm not sure from moment to moment. I still think the challenge in prosecutors making cases that haven't been brought yet, the yeah. January 6th case, is going to turn on how do you prove the content of his mind when even he may not know moment to moment what he means or thinks about something, which is why I long thought that this document's case was the greatest liability he faced because it's so focused. Mm -hmm. And once they have the tape... It, it's very easy for them to establish it. But the, what's unsaid in the indictment is, so what was his motive? Mm. 
And I think I could be convinced, I don't have any inside knowledge on this, but I could be convinced his motive was simply to be able to fill that hole, show you that I have these cool documents, even though yeah. that makes no sense. You're just a visiting journalist, but to show you that I have cool toys and so it's about me. Yeah, that's a strange thing because he, he was the president. He doesn't have to prove that he had access to the nuclear codes. We would assume that that was the case. I do remember when we were researching feet and we were shown around the West Wing and Obama's uh, body man, a rather large guy called Reggie Love. Yeah. He's a great guy. And everyone goes around wearing their surname on their lapel, so he had Love written. Uh, he was showing us around the West Wing. But he would keep referencing the television program, The West Wing. So he would say, this is the Roosevelt Room. This would be where CJ and Josh would. <laughs> and I'm thinking, but hang on, you are. This, is, this really is it. You, <laughs> why don't you say this is where Barack Obama would maybe have a conversation with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And it's like they need that sense of the outer world. They like the showbiz element of it. They, it's almost like they're not sure that whether what they do is an interesting enough job in itself, being the president and, and working in the West Wing, that they need this kind of affirmation outside, this recognition that it's a... Uh, that it has, there's a, there's a charisma attached to it if, um, if Hollywood can get hold of it. And I found that kind of a fascinating, slightly disconnect between, you know, the power that was there and, and their attitudes towards it. Really. I'm sure you didn't see that with Barack Obama, though. Right. right. Was he, he very confident? I never, yeah. I never met him. But, yeah, uh, and I hadn't met him before yeah. he interviewed me for FBI director, yeah. but he is one of the most secure people I've ever dealt with. And he might say this, if he has a weakness, it's maybe overconfidence, but he's not mm. seeking affirmation. There's not a hole he's trying to fill in himself, mm. which is what made the, 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 the two of them so striking. Yes. Yeah. yes, and although it's easy to make Trump a figure of fun, it is also deathly serious, isn't it? it since you were uh, uh, voluntarily uh, removed from the office of uh, head of the FBI, you've really written a lot, really, about the dangers the potential dangers and the threat to American democracy as, that have arisen as a result of what Trump has done and what his followers have done. Yeah, I thought I had to. Yeah. And I don't, I don't understand others similarly situated who decided not to speak out, mm -hmm. but I can't judge them. I just thought I can't look at my children or grandchildren if I don't say what I see and what, what I worry do you about. Think has, what damage do you think has happened already and, and, and what more could happen if there was a second term Trump? I think he has eroded a norm in America, which is that the truth is real. There is a touchstone that is the truth, and we measure our leaders by their tether to that touchstone. You know, when Barack Obama said something about health insurance that was inaccurate, he was held accountable. He had to explain the danger I saw in Trump and still see is that the lies are so, so extensive that they could wash away the touchstone, and we would stop judging without even realizing it, but drop the norm that it matters mm -hmm. whether our leaders tell the truth or not. And so he did that by beating down the press, by constantly, constantly reinforcing the preconceptions of the members of his political cult. And it's a, it's a long walk back from a place where we've lost that at the center of American life. And on top of that, closer to my work, is he's intentionally taken a flamethrower to the Department of Justice and the FBI for reasons that I understand, if you think about his worldview, he knew if a threat was going to come to him, that's where it would come. And so he would prep that battlefield by burning it down 
long in advance. And now he's pulling on those reserves among his supporters. I told you they were corrupt. I told you they were evil. And that's a dangerous place to be because you can criticize and should criticize government institutions, but we need to see those justice institutions as separate from mm -hmm. the political. And he's made sure, I mean, even to say this, if you put this in a script to be rejected, the notion that the FBI is a bunch of leftists bent on destroying Republicans in the United States is so crazy that just to say it out loud seems silly, but there are millions of Americans who believe that because it's been repeated over and over and over again. So among, I, mean, I could go on with the depressing list, but that's probably enough but right what's, now. What's, what's, your, what's your biggest worry if there was a second Trump presidency? What, what more damage could he do? I'm loath to be too prescriptive because I can see ways that he could do more damage. Also, you don't want to give him ideas, correct, I suppose. Correct. <laughs> correct. I think the danger, maybe I'll just say it in this way. I think he understands better how things work and his supporting cast would be even deeper towards mm -hmm. the bottom of the barrel than the last time. And so he would be the retribution president with a better understanding of the levers of power surrounded by a group of people who are looking to burn it all down. And our system would survive that, but he could do things that would be much more lasting damage than he did the last time. James Comey and Armando Iannucci there. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hannah, what are you going to go for? Well, so my pick of 2023, I'm going to go for Bach versus Beethoven, the battle of the great composers. And for that, we have the great cellist Stephen Esselis making the case for Bach and the music critic Norman Lebrecht 
arguing for Beethoven. Stephen Isselis brought his cello, which he describes as his comfort blanket. And of course, he played while he was making the case for Bach. We had the wonderful pianist Mishka Rushdie Merman, who was playing Beethoven for Norman Brecht. And we had the BBC presenter Rita Chakrabarty chairing the proceedings. What I really loved about it, quite apart from the beauty of the performance and the fabulous arguments that the speakers made, was the rather sparky chemistry between them. They were really going for each other at some points in the debate. For listeners who didn't hear it, I just recommend it so much because we had brilliant musicians, brilliant speakers in an extraordinary venue, having a passionate conversation about who's the better composer Bach or Beethoven, or who's the more important or the most historically significant, musically significant composer. And really, it's a win-win. I mean, it's just an extraordinary way into their work, to learning about the composers that we kind of think we learn about at school and we remember a bit. And it's just joyful, sort of spine-tinglingly beautiful and, and moving and educational. And I think when our events are strongest, it's when there's a big Venn diagram of education and entertainment and that worked incredibly successfully there are moments though when i go into our debates with sort of preconceived quite strongly held ideas and thoughts and then have them shifted and actually those moments i remember i want my opinions to be dislodged absolutely you know i can never remember who actually won a debate people often ask me i can't remember what the vote is but I always remember how people spoke. I remember the arguments they made and, and how well they put them across. And I think that's why, as you say, that's why people really do enjoy our debates. It's it's the experience of, of having your own preconceptions challenged. Now, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to ask this technically under the impartiality rules at Intelligence Squared, Hannah, but I'm going to anyway. Which composer would you go for, Bach or Beethoven? Oh, Matt, that's really unfair. <laughs> That's a tough one, Matt. Um, obviously, I adore them both. In this instance, I was always for Beethoven, and I haven't changed my mind. I think Beethoven has everything. Well, I'm looking forward to listening again with some added insight now. This is Stephen Isselis and Norman Labrecht, joined by our host, the journalist Rita Chakrabarty, on stage at Cadogan Hall back in April 2023. Also on stage, providing some music, was concert pianist Mishka Rushdie Merman. Just before we hear the results of that first vote, can I ask you both, Stephen, what was the moment at which you thought, it's Bach? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> it's always been Bach, really. But hang on, I have to say, I'm slightly uncomfortable being in the position of being supposed to be versus Beethoven. I worship Beethoven, I adore Beethoven. But I also worship Bach and I adore Bach. And I'm not going against Beethoven. I'm just seizing an opportunity to, to extol the genius of Bach. And I suppose if I had to sum them up in sound bites, for me, Bach is God and Beethoven is the finest, noblest human spirit ever. <laughs> so which doesn't answer your question, does it? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Maybe when I played the first piece. I'm going to, but actually, no, when I was a little boy, I used to go to sleep to, to the sound of my father practicing Bach's Chacon downstairs. So maybe it was then. Okay. Norman. I don't know when it begins with Beethoven. Again, probably all of my life. I mean, I'm not here to bury Bach. I'm here to reappraise him in light of Beethoven, without whom music would not have gone forward. Beethoven was probably most important to me with the descent of COVID, 
with our isolation and with a sense, I'd started writing the book about three months beforehand, with a sense of empathy that I got in my own isolation with Beethoven's state of not being able to communicate through deafness. And one felt there was no other composer I wanted to live with, no other composer who could speak so intently to that moment. So yes, I mean, Beethoven, it has to be Beethoven. What, what is it that Beethoven does to you? Because music is so emotional. There is the emotion, there is the intellect, there is the ambition, there is the sense of forward propulsion. He never looks back. Right. Stephen, with Bach? I think Bach has everything. I mean, he's, as I said, he's like a god. He's perfect. He's sublime. But he's also so human. He understands every human emotion. And for me, also lockdown, I spent some time listening to the late Beethoven quartets, which was revelatory, but I also heard, and I'm ashamed to say it was for the first time, but I'd sort of been keeping it as a treat, Bach's Mass in B minor. Oh my God, it's so overwhelming. I mean, yes, there's, there's never a rough edge in a way, although there can be anger and violence, but it's all within a sublime perfection. But it's so touching, he just, he understands every human emotion, like Shakespeare does, I suppose. And he can express it, and the, it was so comforting to listen to his music during lockdown and many, many other times. He's a god who, who really cares about us. So interesting. You both mentioned lockdown and how important these composers were to you. We'll hear more about have to say in just a moment. I just want to announce the first vote results. You are a very split audience. We have 45% for Bach, 42% for Beethoven, and 13% undecided. So as all politicos know, it's the 13% that you have to play for. All right, gentlemen. <laughs> Stephen, can I ask you to please make the case for J.S. Bach? Okay, but I'm going to do it. I'm like Linus in his security blanket. I'm not happy unless I have a cello in my hand. <laughs> um, and I, since I do have a cello in my hand, Bach can speak for himself much better than I can speak for him. So I thought I'd start by playing the prelude of the first suite for cello. <laughs> Thank you. 
there were some solo cello pieces written before that in Italy, but Bach could not possibly have known them. As for all intensive purposes, Bach was creating a genre there. And he just understands the cello perfectly. And that goes for every instrument, and of course the voice, the organ his instrument, the violin his instrument, the viola his instrument, the clavichord his instrument, etc. He just understands everything, but understanding an instrument is one thing. But the spirit, I think the radiance that comes through his music, that prelude, it starts off the six suites, it starts off basically the history of, of solo cello music. But it's also, I find it so comforting somehow. It's just so warm and it's just such love shining through it, I suppose. But it's also got the perfection that we associate with Bach and it's perfection that make, makes him so important in music history that every major composer basically had to pay homage to Bach. He influenced them because he brought music to a higher pitch not literally a higher pitch, a higher pitch of perfection. I suppose the danger is that people sort of look at his picture with a wig and looking quite stern, and they think, oh, yes, he's mathematically brilliant, you know, he's, but he's not one of us. But he absolutely is. And the man had many children, and you can hear it in his music. You can hear the joy. I mean... I, there's so much joy in his music and so much humor, maybe not laugh out loud humor necessarily, but humor that just makes you feel good, makes you feel he's having a good time, or maybe he's God watching his children having a good time. There is that sort of joy and warmth in his music, and that's why I've chosen just one movement from his first gamba sonata. Of course, it would have been gamba and harpsichord, but viola de gamba and harpsichord, but today it's cello and piano. And it's the last one, you know, it's one of reams of such pieces, but every one you get to know, you fall in love with, because there's so much information there in every note. And just as his first biographer said, he could make a fugue seem as simple as a minuet. And that's really, and that's why Beethoven called him the immortal Jove of harmony quite right. Anyway, so we're playing. Oh, I've got to keep an eye on the time. When did I start? Okay. It's going to be, it's going to be 13 minutes. Um, okay. Last moment of the first Gambus sonata.
that's Bach in a good mood, which he very often is. And don't think he was some distant academic. He got into a sword fight with a bassoonist, because he, he told the bassoonist he sounded like a nanny goat. <laughs> and um, he got put in prison for other things. He was, a, and he also got into trouble for making music with a young lady in the organ loft. Um, he, was, he was a lad, Bach. He was full of fire and temperament. And apparently when he conducted, they said, it was like he had rhythm in every part of his body. But of course, there was another side besides the joy, besides the fire and the excitement. There's also this incredible profundity. And I thought I would play you without repeats, um, probably. No, I think, if we, I think I might have time for the repeats. The Saraban from the fifth suite. Now this is, for me, the, the whole suite is, is the passion story for cello. And for me, this is the moment of the crucifixion where Christ is abandoned on the cross. But it doesn't matter whether you think that or not. It's such a portrait of loneliness. One of the high, high points of music for me is, is Ebama Dick and the St. Matthew Passion, where Simon Peter realizes that the cock has crowed three times and he has denied Christ. And the aria that follows just sums up everything that we feel in moments you know, when we feel remorse, when we feel grief, and this too, this saraband for me, sums up loneliness and anguish. But it's not depressing. It's never depressing because there's, a, again, a radiance to it that it's, it sublimates suffering through beauty.
if you think about that piece, it also gives you into a glimpse of why Bach was such an influence. Because to say why it is so moving is impossible. There's no tune, there's no rhythmic interest, there are no chords. It's a miracle, I think, that piece. Mm. It's just the depth of emotion he can convey through just a few notes. And that was a, is a huge influence even today on music. So I better finish. And I'm sorry, I slightly uh, sort of weighted on the slow pieces of Bach. And of course, as I said, like pieces like the Brandenburg concertos are just thrilling and exciting and full of verve and life. And of course, the Beatles used Brandenburg, quoted the Brandenburgs, for instance, because of just that rhythmic energy. That, you know, it's funny to think that Bach influenced the Beatles, but he definitely did. We'd like to finish with a chorale prelude. And again, Bach, in a few, in a few notes, he just he tells us he understands us. He makes our life better by talking to us in the voice of God.
Stephen Isserlis and Norman Lebrecht there, along with concert pianist Mishka Rushdie-Moman and Rita Chakrabarty debating Bach versus Beethoven back in April 2023. Of course, there's much more where those came from. Dig into the podcast feed and catch up on any of our great chats you might have missed. And if you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue too, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com. Thanks for listening.